Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always. Thank you for joining us today, where we are speaking with Tom D. Lorenzo on his new book about economics. But first, but first, let's pay some bills. And our sponsor today is, of course, Bluehost. If you're looking for hosting, you want to use Bluehost. And if you do, I'll give you free publicity on this podcast. Just send me a screenshot of your purchase using my link. Okay, with that being said, Tom D. Lorenzo is the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Economics, a topic that is, <laughs> I'm sure, on all of our minds right now with inflation. So be sure to check out the book, and I hope you enjoy my interview. Tom, welcome to The War Room. I'm pleased to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is always good to be talking about, well, I enjoy talking about economics. Maybe I hope the listeners do as well. <laughs> we have a, a wide variety of, I think this is the first show I can remember uh, specifically de- devoted to this topic. Now, the longtime listeners know that I am a free market uh, capitalist, very much so. Um, and so we've had a lot of discussions around that. You, however, are the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Economics. So what is politically incorrect about this book as it pertains to economics? Well, it's a part of the uh, Regnery Publishing series of politically incorrect guides. There, there are 30 of them already. I think this is the 31st. And they're written sort of irreverently, uh, and, but scholarly and filled with footnotes, but, but written for the average person you know, in a language that, uh, that minimizes or eliminates jargon, academic jargon. And uh, the theme of the book is I started out with a, a quote by um, Doug Casey, who's a well-known uh, Wall Street investor, and he's a pretty conservative guy. And he pointed out that most uh, commentators on, on economics that you see on TV or New York Times, Washington Post, he says they're basically political propagandists for some sort of government planning, he even calls them uh, economic witch doctors. And, and, he's, and he's, he makes a pitch in this article, online article of his saying, you need to be your own economist. You need to educate yourself and don't rely on sound bites from these talking heads because more often than not, they have an agenda. And the agenda is, is almost uh, entirely bigger government, more taxes, more, more government planning of your life and less freedom. And so my book uh, explains uh, real economics. You know, I, was, I was an economics professor for 41 years, recently retired from my university job. And, uh, and I wrote it in plain English. And I wrote basically how, how markets work, how economic freedom works, and how government doesn't work in, in the book. And it's, so it's a politically incorrect guide to uh, economics in that regard. Yeah, and I think maybe one of the more prominent economist out there is uh, Paul Krugman. And if you watch his commentary, it, it really is just political commentary, depending on whose office. There's no, I mean, he does get into some um, economics at some point, but it's really just pure bias based upon, you know, if, if it's a Republican in, then it's bad. If it's a Democrat in, then it's good. Um, if it's heavy spending, he's usually okay with it. And so I, I think that we get a little bit duped as just the general public thinking, oh, well, he won a, uh, he won a uh, Nobel Peace Prize, or he's won this big award, or he's the New York Times. He's an economist. This is just math, and is right. not. He's a political hack, and so it's, it's quite frustrating, right. though. He's an economic witch doctor. For example, Krugman, uh, right after the, there was a NASDAQ crash in around the year 2000, big stock market crash, 
And uh, Krugman goes to the New York Times and says, what the Federal Reserve Board needs to do now is create a bubble in the housing market to get lots of spending behind housing. And of course they did, and, and that bubble burst in 2008. And then uh, just uh, about a couple of weeks ago, you know, he, he taught economics for decades, still is, in, uh, in New York City. And he used all the same textbooks or same types of textbooks that I did. And they all defined a recession the same way for, for decades, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. That is when the economy actually shrinks for six months. That's the official government definition of a recession has been for many decades. Movement goes on TV on one of the Sunday shows and it says, no, we're not in a recession. He just declares we're not in a recession because his guy, Joe Biden, is in the White House. And it's just patently dishonest. Uh, I mean, he, it would have been more helpful for him to say, yes, we are in a recession, and here's my recommendations for getting out of it. But instead, he uh, he lied. And so, yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a hack for one, one of the political parties. And both <laughs> political parties have hacks, but uh, people like Krugman are the most egregious. Right. So let me, maybe for the listeners who um, aren't as familiar, and I'm, I'm not an economist for sure, but um, one of the things I used to do on LinkedIn, I get these messages from like, um, oh gosh, um, the big the Charles Schwab or uh, groups like that, they would say, hey, we want to invest your money. And the first thing I'd always ask them is, is what school of economics do you subscribe to? You know, just ask that question just to see what they'd say. And most of them were like, I'm not sure what you're talking about. And I'm like, well, then you probably don't need to be managing money if you have no idea <laughs> about the different yeah. thoughts of economics. So it, there, I think a lot of people go, okay, yeah, I can see politics playing into how people interpret the economy. But there's actually different schools uh, and thoughts of about how to do economics. Maybe unpack those at a high level, uh, kind of the mainstream ones uh, uh, main, or more popular ones uh, and kind of where you fall at. Yeah, sure. You know, you know the uh the economics profession, you know, really beginning at Depression era, became very interventionist. There was something called the Keynesian Revolution, a revolution of ideas. Uh, it was basically the, uh, the American and uh, Western European version of government planning. It wasn't as extreme as the Soviet Union planning. They called that central planning. But it was mostly macroeconomic planning and government tinkering. And it, it, it basically flopped, didn't work very well. Even the New Deal itself, um, the unemployment rate, you know, was 2.9% in 1929 on the eve of the stock market crash. And by 1939, it was still 17%. So it was still almost five times higher than normal by, by the end of the 30s. So the New Deal was a flop. And yet, but uh, that type of economics, interventionist economics uh, prevailed because it, uh, to economists, it gave them prestige, gave them money. It was more fun to be an advisor to a, to a, a senator or, or the president than teaching undergraduates in a classroom. And, and so that sort of paved the way for uh, the interventionist economics. But there was always a remnant, as I call it, of uh, a basic free market economists. And uh, there are several schools of thought. One is called the Austrian school, because some of the uh, founders of this school of thought came from Austria. The most best known in, uh, to Americans who, who, uh, who went to school and studied anything at all about this would be Friedrich Hayek, who won the Nobel Prize in 1974. And his teacher, Ludwig von Mises, kind of a catchy name, he was the preeminent critic of socialism in the 1920s, in 19th century, and the preeminent 
scholar of capitalism in the 20th century. And so uh, that, that's the Austrian School of Economics and the free market school. And more, most people in America who are, went to college probably are familiar with the Chicago School. That's another free market school of economics, uh, most associated with the name of Milton Friedman, the late Milton Friedman, who was very, a very popular writer, wrote a great book in 1980 with his wife, Prose, called Free to Choose. It was made into a, a documentary by PBS. And then there's another, a third school. With, uh, there were professors of mine when I was in graduate school. It's called the Public Choice School, and it's basically uses uh, the, you know economics is, is a lot of it is about incentives, how how incentives drives human behavior, and the Public Choice School is about applying the study of economic incentives to understanding how government works, not just how supply and demand and markets and and so forth but how, how the decision-making by politicians and government bureaucrats, voting, special interest groups, how that works. Because when it comes down to it, there's only really two ways to allocate resources in a society. That's the market, buying and selling on the market or government. And so it's important to understand how government works or doesn't work. And so, uh, and there's, so there's a whole big um, literature in the field of economics on the economics of government failure and I write about it in my book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Economics. So those are the big three parts of what I call the remnant in, in economics, the public choice school, the Chicago school, and the Austrian school of economics. Now, you mentioned the great, uh, the, new, the New Deal and the Great Depression. I actually have The Politically Incorrect Guide uh, by Robert Murphy for that topic. Right. And so I'll link to that in the show notes for folks who want to uh, listen that he is an Austrian economist writing from uh, on on those topics. Okay. So, you know, let, let me unpack, um, you know, let's talk about some politically incorrect things um, because I think this is where it becomes quite confusing uh, for someone like, from like, someone like myself or other folks. What, you know, is free market where we're supposed to go? How much free market is free market bad, free market good. Uh, and then, you know, who, which candidates or which presidents in history have been some of the better free market candidates? Well, um, you know, free market. Uh, free market is simply uh, the, one man who put it very clearly was Adam Smith, who wrote this famous book, The Wealth of Nations, in 1776, the year of the American Declaration of Independence. And in one line in that book, he says this: He says, "Give me that which you want, and I will give you that which. <clears throat> give me that which you want, and I and I, and I will give. I'll give you that which I want. Or, or give me that which I. I'm sorry." Give me that which I want, and I will give you that which you want. Got it right that time. In other words, he was writing this book at a time when capitalism and markets was relatively new, and people wanted to know, is this good or bad for society as a whole? And he said, all this is, is buying and selling, is I will give you that which you want, and you give me that which I want. And what I want, of course, is money. And so, uh, and I have an old friend who's a, a rabbi, and, uh, and uh, he gives a great talk on markets. Uh, Daniel Lappin is his name. And, uh, and, and he once said that, um, and to paraphrase him, he said, I would not be surprised to learn someday that God does not disapprove of a system where human beings are motivated to help each other out day in and day out. And that's basically what the free market is, because really the only way to make money in the marketplace is to provide your fellow man, your fellow woman, with something that they think will improve their life a little bit, or maybe a lot, depending on what it is. 
And mm. so that's really the only way. And government, on the other hand, government just says, here, we think you want this, now pay it or you go to prison. It's called, go, it's called going to prison for tax evasion. You have no choice. And, right. you, and we don't even express a demand for some of these things. The government just says, this is what you're going to have, like it or not, and uh, pay up. And so it's very different, uh, very different uh, organization altogether. Right. But, but you know, it, it seems quite popular now to, to kind of um, put down capitalism. You know, we have the, the, the phrase crony capitalism and how capitalism is uh, creating inequality, uh, especially wealth gaps. What would you say to those, those people? Nothing has diminished inequality more than capitalism. Capitalism is economic opportunity. The only way the, the world has ever known to diminish inequality, income inequality, is through more capitalism, not less, more economic opportunity, not less. That's why we have hordes of immigrants risking their lives every single day to come here because they're leaving these socialist countries in Latin America and elsewhere all over the world because they know about the, the much greater degree of economic freedom here in this country that we still have, although the political class is, is trying to destroy it uh, day in and day out. And of course, crony capitalism is not capitalism. Free market economists like myself, uh, I've written book after book criticizing crony capitalism and saying we need to get rid of that system and, and in favor of real markets. Uh, you know, when, the, when the Congress voted a couple of weeks ago to give $250 billion of the B to millionaire and billionaire uh, computer uh, company owners in Silicon Valley. That was a, an abomination. It was crony capitalism at its worst. And, uh, and we, need to, we need to get rid of that altogether. It's rotten and corrupt. Uh, we, we fought an American revolution over that sort of thing several hundred years ago. It was called mercantilism back then, but today we call it crony capitalism. So the critics are right to, uh, to, uh, to criticize that. But where they go wrong is say, well, we need more government control to prevent that. But when you put government control, the first thing it does is get in bed, so to speak, with capitalists and figure out some way to put one over on the public for the, for the profit of both of them, uh, the profit of the, uh, the politicians and the, the capitalists uh, themselves. Uh, you know, how else could Nancy Pelosi, for example, be worth, what, $150 million? Mm -hmm. and it wasn't just because she married a rich guy. And, uh, you know, how else could the people like, uh, you know, pick, pick whoever you want, be a public servant and retire as a multimillionaire on a public servant's salary? It's because of all the inside deals that they've been involved in over the years, uh, insider political trading, in other words. Especially when you take into account that they live uh, in D.C. Um, in the highest income, you know, the high, well, the highest rent housing industries in the U.S. Right. So it's not like they're living in a cheap area where they could still cash. It's yeah, so a, lot of them have, a lot of them have two homes. They keep a home back, you know, back in the state where they came from. And then they have a place in D.C. And in my book, I, uh, I quote an article from the Washingtonian magazine that, that's kind of, uh, I thought it was, funny but sad at the same time. It says, uh, how, did, how did we Washingtonians get so rich? You know, and it, it talked about streets paved with gold where everybody on the street is, makes at least a million dollars a year. And then, they, and then there are different streets in the Washington DC area, neighborhoods where they say people there are tycoon rich, where they make 50 million a year or more, something like that. 
And it gives examples like a former Louisiana uh, member of Congress, uh, Billy Tarzan, I think was his name. And he retired from Congress and took a job as a lobbyist for a pharmaceutical company at a salary of $3 million a year. And so that's what's called the revolving door. And uh, I wrote an article about it uh, where I called that us taxpayers suckers. You know, what, what a bunch of suckers we, we are for supporting mm -hmm. a system that, that basically allows these people to plunder us. And uh, I said at the beginning of this article that, that the real purpose of government is for those who run it to plunder those who do not. And when you see what's going on in Washington, that seems to me to be a, a perfect fit of at least 95% of what goes on in government. Yeah, and, and maybe this is pause there for a second, because I, th I think, and, and I've said this numerous times, there's a stat that's like, hey, Americans only trust 10% of politicians or something like that. And I always joke that that's, when people ask that question, they're thinking about, if you're a Republican, you're thinking about a Democrat or vice versa, they're thinking about the other guy. But what you're talking about here is a bipartisan thing that's happening. It's not just Nancy Pelosi. It's those on the right as well. It's, it's there's plenty of of um, of um, I don't know if stealing, thieving, however you want, you know, under backroom deals. Uh, there was a congressman you mentioned Louisiana um, a few years ago, and he ran on a special election. He won, kind of a dark horse um, deal. You know, no one really expected to win, but he won. And when he won. Uh, between the time he won the election and he got put in office, he got caught cheating. Um, I don't know if he was cheating on his wife or not, but he was kissing his campaign manager, which was the wife of his best friend. So he only got to serve a year because he couldn't win again, right? But he wrote a thing saying in that year, all the people that were coming to him, knowing that he was leaving office, that he was, you know, he had very little shot of winning at a full election, still were offering him all kinds of opportunities and things uh, just for that one year he's in office. And he was a Republican in a very conservative part of Louisiana. I say to say that this is not just a Democrat issue. This is a both sides issue. And we talk about crony capitalism, but to your point, the more government control has, the more the top elites are going to come and, and suck off that off that government tit. And so it's a problem that you, you only compound this issue, right, if you give government more, more power. So giving government less power is how you would loosen this um, this um, kind of swap between politicians and, and the corporate elites. Yeah, or the devolution of power away from Washington, D.C., and more towards the local localism, federalism, in, in other words, nullifying uh, things that the federal government is doing. And yeah, you know, the Republican Party was, uh, they were the founding fathers of cronyism because uh, during the Civil War and afterwards, they, they got the ball rolling on these massive subsidies for the railroad corporations back in the 19th century. And that was, that's, that's what really opened the floodgates to uh, what we call corporate welfare or crony capitalism. And, and it's just festered ever since then. So you're right, you know, both parties I can remember when uh, the late Bob Dole retired from the Senate and, you know, public servant and they make a good salary, but not a not, nothing that'll make you make you mega wealthy living in Washington, D.C. Uh, but he was worth mega millions. You know, how did that happen? How did, how did you make a sort of a modest politician salary living in the most expensive city in the, in the country and, and retire as a mega millionaire? It's all these inside deals. And, uh, and, but from, and I would argue that um, a lot of people are motivated to get into politics in the first place in order to take bribes of that sort right. and to become rich and powerful. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about the 
last two president, the current president and the last president. Um, let's start with Trump because he's out. Um, what are some of the good things he did and some of the bad things he did from an economic perspective? Well, as an economic nerd, one of the very good things Trump did is he did really significantly scale back on regulations that seem to have all cost and no benefit to society, of which there are many thousands. There, there's a uh, publication by a group called the Competitive Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. CEI.org is their website. They publish a, a research report every year called 10,000 Commandments. And it, it just charts how many tens of thousands of government regulations there are. And now every time a business person has to spend time complying with regulations, it's time they're not spending improving their product, figuring out, figuring out how to be more competitive, how to cut their costs, how to cut their price, how to come up with a new product. They're dealing with the bureaucracy. And so that takes away from American competitiveness and it's very costly to our economy. And Trump did a great job with that. He also cut taxes on, on businesses, which uh, made American business more competitive. He also deregulated uh, a lot of the oil and gas business. And we actually had an energy independence for, for a short while when President Trump was, was in, in power. And so those were all good things from an economic perspective that he did. Although when, uh, he, was, he didn't seem to care much about government spending and the deficit, he was just as big a spender as all the rest of them. He, uh, his, his biggest failure, as was Ronald Reagan's biggest failure, is he surrounded himself with Republican Party hacks who were of the sort you just described and being only interested in sort of the permanent Washington bureaucracy and their own power and aggrandizement. And he had too many of those people around him. But some of the people that he brought with him from New York were very, very good about that. They're the ones that got him to cut the taxes and, and the regulations and all these good things. And then he brought too many uh, establishment Republicans in, which, which was my, uh, my opinion of, of Trump from an economic perspective. Yeah, one thing pushback on there. We did not get energy independence. This is a lie the Trump administration um, has said. Just from a mass standpoint, the U.S. uses 20 million barrels. We've only ever produced about 12 or 13 million barrels. So you have a 7 million barrel deficit. Aside from that, the type of oil we produce has to be blended with other types of oil. So just I, I, I hear that a lot, but that's just it's just the numbers. It's, it's not a political point against Trump. It's just factually we've never we're not producing more than we use. So we, by that alone, we can't hit that metric. But even if we did, you get into the science of the oil. We can't actually refine enough our own product. To, we have to we have to import. So just just as an aside, there I don't I don't I'm curious why you why you reference that, but it's it's uh, he, this, he made he made a, he made a lot of progress in that regard there. Whether whether we achieved a hundred percent independence or not, you know, yeah, you know, we always import something, but we yeah. did make a lot of progress. He was much friendlier to the oil industry than right. uh, certainly than the current president, who wants to shut it down completely. Apparently, yeah, that is now okay. If you're talking about federal leasing and stuff like that, obviously he was uh, a lot better uh, on those issues. But just on the yes. just on the energy independence thing, I, I think it is, the reason I point that out because I think there's a lot of Americans who walk around right now thinking, oh, we're energy independent, or we could be, and it's Again, 12 million barrels a day produced, 20 million barrels a day consumed. That's an 8 million barrel a day deficit. Uh, it's, just, it's just factually not true. And to, to, to live, to push for policies that live in that world would be um, very, very catastrophic for, for the country. So it's, uh, it's just, I, I have a lot of long history of energy. So that's why I happen to know about that one. Um, okay. So you talk about Biden, though. So Biden obviously has policies that are, 
you mentioned the spending. So let's talk about spending. So the Trump administration spent like everyone else. The Biden administration is spending like crazy. Uh, and they're also adding regulatory measures that would seem to slow down the economy. One of the problems here is how do we actually measure the economy and how it's doing well or not? Because you mentioned um, Krugman early on about redefining the definition of, of a recession. Um, you know, I think, you know, when before Trump was in office, he was kind of uh, critiquing the Obama administration for how they were uh, uh, measuring the economy. And he kind of did the same on some level. Now you had the Biden administration. How do we measure how this economy is doing and how do we judge that? Uh, how do we judge Joe Biden or whoever it is against those measurements? Well, well, the one measure that everybody has used for many decades is gross domestic product, GDP, as it's called. It's the total value of goods and services produced uh, in, in a year, uh, adjusting for inflation. And so that's and that's the government, the Commerce Department keeps that statistic. Like everything else government does, it probably does a shoddy job of, of, of gathering all those statistics, but that's what we've got. And that's what everybody uses. That's what's in all the economics textbooks. So when they talk about it being in a recession, it's when that number actually declines for six months straight is the uh, what, what the what the government and everybody else has used as a definition of recession for many decades now. And but it's not the only thing that's um, you know, we talk about the unemployment rates, how many people are unemployed also. That's that's relevant. And that's yeah. basically uh, a fraction of uh, how many people are out of work divided by the, the labor force. Uh, which is everybody who's working and, and not working, but looking for a job. Although a lot of people have just given up at any uh, point in time and are not looking for a job, but they're not counted as being in the labor force. So it's kind of a tricky statistic, but we do. Those are the two things we mostly uh, hear about. Yeah. Let, let's unpack that for half a second, because I found this out a few years ago and I was stunned. So if you're unemployed, if I understand correctly for two years, after two years, you drop off the unemployment number. So if, if Ryan Ray was unemployed, um, let's say July of 2020 uh, until July of 2022, starting in August or September, whenever they would no longer count me as unemployed anymore. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, it's called uh, they call them discouraged workers. But but in reality, you don't know why somebody is unemployed. If you have a hard time finding a job in it and it's two years and one month. Uh, what does it matter? I mean, you're you're still struggling and trying to find a job, and you you should be counted. But that's just an arbitrary decision the government has made, uh, as far as that goes. So that that would suggest that the unemployment is probably a somewhat worse than the number would uh, would suggest. There's also a group online. I don't know if you've heard of them, Shadowstats.com, and they do such things as they look at uh, uh, they compute the inflation rate using the same formula that the government used back in the 1980s. And they say that today it's more like 15%, whereas the government says it's around eight and a half percent today, right right now. And they do the similar thing with unemployment because the government sometimes, sometimes does change these definitions uh, of these statistics. Yeah. And so I think, especially coming out of COVID, we should stop and think about, all the people that lost their job two years ago, um, you know, many of them have returned to the workforce, but there's probably a good conting contingency that hasn't returned. And as the two year mark goes off, they're being left off of this unemployment trend. And so the trend theoretically could look better unless you had layoffs that are that are happening at the same time. And so if if unemployment stayed the same, 
I'm mean, sorry. If yeah, yeah. So if you had a hundred people who were unemployed, um, but then over two years they don't get jobs, then it appears as if you have less unemployment because those people are dropping off, but not. And so I think with the massive turnover we had the last couple of years, um, it's probably hard to figure out exactly how many of those people have returned to the workforce uh, and how many of them aren't because of the way we measure this this number. Yeah, and well, plus uh, the government. Uh, pays uh, unemployment insurance and after during COVID they they in most of the states uh, increase the amount you get and uh, lengthen the period of time you can be on unemployment insurance and so a lot of people especially in in lower paying jobs you know maybe not uh, corporate executives and engineers and things like that but but uh, you know average working Joe and Jane uh, decided that it was it was more economical to stay home and collect the government check, then go back to work. And so they didn't really look for a new job for a while, not that there were any available for a while during COVID. Uh, and so that that lengthened the, the time of unemployment also. So you might have had a lot of people that just for two years were paid unemployment insurance that was enough. And then maybe mm-hmm. they worked under the, under the table, you know, maybe painted houses for cash or something like that to pay some of the bills. And so they were incentivized to remain unemployed. And so then the two-year time limit hits, and uh, the government drops them off the list altogether, like you said, and and they're still unemployed. Okay, so let's talk about inflation, the topic of the day probably for a lot of Americans. Um, in my view, there's a three-prong, it's much more than this, but it's at a high-level three-prong pro- process with inflation. There's um, everything up until COVID that happened, which was, as you talk about printing, uh, regulatory issues that made it worse, um, you know, terrible fiscal uh, policies. Then during COVID, we just, you know, we stormed the gates, if you will, and just kind of went crazy with everything. And then since COVID, we've only compounded that worse as now we're funding wars and we're printing for this bill and that bill. So COVID and post-COVID seem to have really made it worse, but um, this seems to have dated well before COVID um, with how we've handled our monetary policies. For sure. It it dates from 1913, the creation of the Federal Reserve Board, um, there was no inflation from 1789, the year the Constitution was ratified, until 1913. There were ups and downs. There were some years where there was a little price inflation, but the price level, as far as we know, there, there's historical statistics on this, was about the same in 1913 as it was in 1789. And then, you know, from 1913 on to today, uh, the value of the dollar is, is uh, shrunk by about at least 95%. You know, it's worth a, you know, a nickel or less than that it was in 1913. And so the Fed has created uh, you know, decades of price inflation. In fact, it's officially Fed policy that they never, ever want inflation to go be- below 2% <laughs> because they're, they're sort of stuck on this Great Depression mentality, thinking that, it, that uh, declining prices are caused by depressions but that's not the only cause. Declining prices are all also caused by production and supply and, and, a, and a good economy that drives down prices. When we produce more things, uh, the prices go down. And so the, and the Fed doesn't distinguish uh, between that. And so it keeps prices up, inflation up, and interest rates. It controls interest rates. And so, yeah, that's been going on for a long time. It created the NASDAQ bubble, which burst in 2000. Then it responded with that by creating the housing bubble with near zero interest rates. That bubble burst in 2008. 
And now there's there's bubbles in the stock market and in the, in the, the automobile market, the student loan market. And um, a friend of mine in Las Vegas who was is a retired banker tells me that the housing prices in Vegas are uh, in, a, in a much bigger bubble than they were in 2007, in his opinion, right now. And no one knows when this these might burst. That's you know we're not fortune tellers, but uh, that's all the work of the Fed, as as it's called, the Federal Reserve Board. Yeah, and, and so uh, final question here for you: If you look at the the Fed monetary policy, um, should Americans be concerned that 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 hate that this thing is going to crash and crumble, or is there some solace in perhaps that some of the other world governments have handled their? Uh, <laughs> their fiscal uh, monetary policies just as poorly as we have, and we might get outlast this thing. Yeah, well, that's been going on for years, too, that uh, the, the dollar is as strong as it is because other governments are even worse than ours. That's that sort of uh, you know faint praise, isn't it, of, of, of our government. But uh, we ultimately, ultimately need to get away from um, the, the system that we have where, where the government can engage in literally legalized counterfeiting and you know, for, for about 3,000 years, gold was the major form of money or, or a currency backed by gold. And we would be better off if we had competing currencies like we did before the Fed. And, uh, and we could have competing banks that, that would, some would be more solvent than others because they would back their currency with uh, precious metals. Uh, the cryptocurrencies are battling now. It's a new, new type of competition actually that the Fed has had for the first time ever. With the cryptocurrencies and i was just uh, attended a debate over this over whether in the next century whether a cryptocurrency or the you know the fed type government created money supply uh, or gold uh, would be uh, would prevail what would your bet <laughs> uh my bet is there'll be a, a death struggle uh, with the fed and the central banks around the world but i think I think if the world is survived to survive this, they will eventually adopt competing currencies backed by precious metals or something more valuable than the good word of politicians and promises <laughs> by politicians. Yes. I think the crypto people um, say they, yeah, we understand the fight ahead of us. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not saying I, I agree with you that that's probably where things will end, but uh, it's going to be a, a struggle. Um, uh, to get that adopted. Okay. Where do we, where should we send people to, to obviously to buy the book, um, anywhere else you, you have website, social media, you want to push people to. Well, amazon.com is the best place. That's, that's where everybody buys books these days. It seems, and any bookstore can get it if they don't have it, the, the politically incorrect guide to economics. I'm a columnist for lewrockwell.com. It's a man's name, L E W rockwell.com. And I have, I have, probably several hundred articles on there. If anyone wants to look at some of my other articles on other topics, I also have an Amazon page. Uh, this is my 18th book and, and, uh, and so several of them are listed on my Amazon page on that website. Okay. We'll link to all of that at the show notes, which are at ranraysenior.com. Uh, so we'll put all that to Luke Rockwell, to Amazon, to your current book and everything else there. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome, and uh, thank you for having me. Have a great day.